Hello and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Tonight in the Mezcal Collective at Las Perlas in downtown Los Angeles, we had Judah Cooper in the house with Mezcal Vago, some of the best artisanal mezcals in the world. We tried two different expressions of espadine. We learned a lot about the whole process. We tried an ensemble, the elote, which is the first mezcal vago that I ever had, traditional to Candelaria Yogole. My pronunciation is much worse than his. And then what else? We, we had the ensemble. And we had a beautiful tobala uh, in barro, a really rare 48 liter batch uh, from three years ago that was tasting pretty darn good. 48 liter batch from three years ago. Where were you? Be sure to enjoy this podcast responsibly. That means do not spill a drop of that 48 liter batch of Tobala from Mezcal Vago. Judah, thanks for coming out tonight, man. My absolute pleasure. Thanks so Cheers. much. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh. Oh, oh, oh yeah. All right. All right. All right. That was very good. He's slow clap. You know about the slow clap, Judah? Yeah, that's it. That's it. All nice. right. All right. Very nice. But Judith, your story about how Mezcal Vago came into the world, it's, it's a pretty funny story, right? A lot of things could have gone wrong, uh, and I'm pretty Some fortunate. Some things did go wrong, but then you were, you were saved. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even imagine how I got to where I am today. It's just an incredible story. My life's been changed so much, and my family's life, and... Um, we're just I feel so fortunate and so proud and happy about everything that we have. It's and it's it's a fun and and exciting and true story. <laughs> well, tell us for those who don't know the history of Mezcal Vago, it's a really funny story. So, you live up in Ventura. They've yeah, got, I live. They've got nice waves up there, right? Yeah. So I'm originally actually from Colorado. Okay, they've Born got in, great waves in Colorado. Yeah, we got we surf we surf the mountains. That's right. But as soon as I was 18, I just wanted to be a ski bum. You know, I grew up skiing and snowboarding, really. And I moved down to a little town in southwest Colorado called uh, Telluride, Colorado. Beautiful, gorgeous mountains. Right. And, uh, and I went skiing for 15 years, uh, for a long time, <laughs> into my mid-30s. And um, it was an incredible way of life. I mean, I didn't, I was pretty poor, but um, I worked every industry ski town job you can imagine. And um, the, the great thing about working in those resort towns is that between, between like winter and summer, which are the big seasons, there's two months on either side where you really can't even afford to stay in town. Your job shuts down. Yeah, um, you basically save up money for a plane ticket and you go somewhere in the world and you try and live until the, the jobs start up two months later. So, um, so I traveled the world uh, for 15 years skiing and I went all over Asia and, and Europe and, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and of course, a ton to Central America and, and Mexico. I went to Mexico more than anywhere. And I really, I really loved it. And I fell deeply in love with traveling and looking at cultures through their food. I just love to, um, I think that to me, that's the biggest window and, and the most fun way to look at cultures is, is eating the, the different foods. And so after, after 15 years of skiing, I decided I actually had enough. I didn't think the day would ever come, but I decided that I wanted to be a surfer. So I, I worked two jobs and saved up and bought a cheap Toyota, 
filled my truck with surfboards and camping gear and, and just drove south till I ran out of money. And, um, and then sold my truck and, and used that money, went back and did it again and did it again. And I did that more or less for about eight years. And I drove California to Peru and I explored the entire Pacific coast. And, and South America was incredible. Central America was amazing, but Mexico is what really captured my heart. It's just the depth of culture, the difference of people, um, how much it changes um, state to state, town to town, village to village. Uh, it just it blew my mind. And of course, the surfing was phenomenal on the, on the coast. And my last trip ran out of money, made it all the way down to Peru, sold my truck an hour before the, the airplane, somehow uh, made it back, worked for nine months, got, got, a, got another truck and drove straight to my favorite beach on the whole Pacific coast, which is um, all, the way, uh, all the way down in Oaxaca, which is of course southern Mexico on the bottom of the Horn of Mexico. There is a beautiful national park, a little island called Lagunas de Chacawa. It's about an hour and a half towards Acapulco from, from uh, Puerto Escondido. And uh, it's a really interesting place. It's all Afro-Mexicanos actually that live there and incredible people, amazing food um, and great waves. And I got an ear infection like right away surfing there like within the first month. And I'd been going there for years. So I went into the little clinic and this is a town of about 250 people. And so when you, when you graduate as a professional in Mexico, a lawyer, doctor, nurse, teacher, anything like that, you do your residency as a year of volunteer service in a rural community, uh, Servicio Social it's called. And so they have a little clinic that's just uh, staffed with um, one nurse and a doctor that rotates in a couple times a week. Um, and so I went in and saw the one nurse. Uh, she came out and, uh, and I fell in instantly in love with Valentina, I'll embarrass her. And she's back here, that's uh, Valentina Garcia. My <laughs> And, Why um, does she come with you to these things? You do that every time you have an event? It's like, she's, I'm uh, going to embarrass my wife now. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm, she tried. Pretty so. soon she's going to be up here doing all the talking, and I'll, I'll, she can embarrass me. It's going to be great. Um, but, um, you know, it was love at first sight. It's like, sounds so funny, but it, it was more even like it was like the most familiar person I'd ever seen when she walked out. And, and one thing I learned about love at first sight is apparently it only works in one direction. It's not a two-direction thing, so... Um, it's the story of my life. Yeah, she was engaged. To be, to, she was engaged to be married. It was dicey times, um, but uh, you know, we had a wonderful, slow courtship, and and we felt we fell in love, and um, eventually we uh, got married, and and um, and I asked for her her hand in marriage from my father-in-law. Uh, luckily, he didn't know that she, we were already married and she was pregnant. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> we, just, we just eloped wow. at the Registro Civil, but. I was fully committed, uh, and uh, he's and, gonna and find out now so. if he's a podcast listener. We're <laughs> <Yeah>. in trouble. <laughs> he does. He does. Um, and uh, and so I married into this incredible fam uh, family. And Valentina is the first of her family to graduate college. She grew up in Candelaria, Yegole, which you guys probably think is this mezcal metropolis because Vago and Recampero, two amazing brands, come from this little town. But it's a little town of 250 people in the middle of the mountains, three hours outside of Oaxaca, two hours on crazy dirt roads. They just put a bridge in. We used to have to drive across the river uh, even to get there. And um, there's no stores, there's no economy. The folks that live up there are farmers. They're sustenance farmers. 
They grow all their own food. They grow corn, beans, and squash. The three sisters where all their root structures and everything grows together, as we know. And they, of course, grow agave in with the corn. And, uh, and so she walked three hours to get to high school on Monday and three hours back on Friday. And, and she made it and graduated and became a nurse and something the whole family's uh, incredibly proud of. And, um, and so I married into this family and they'd been making mezcal they, for as long as they can remember. They remember names back six generations and then that's just like where the, the family story, they suppose it goes back even further. But never as a business, just as a way of life. And um, you know, when I was a ski bum and a surf bum, I actually took it really seriously. Some people have the ability to focus on one thing like that, and, and I really do. I love it. Um, but um, I never really drank, so it was really different to me to like, when I came into Mezcal, I really came in through the food and, and through the cultural part of it. And, um, and I think it was a really neat way to come into the industry. And, and my father-in-law really uh, taught me everything I know about Mezcal. And, and um, unfortunately, I ran out of money as soon as we were uh, married. <laughs> <laughs> and I was dead broke, so we asked the um, elders on that island uh, where, I'd, where I'd been going for years and where our, uh, Valentina had been the sole medical professional for a year, would it be all right if we rented a little shack? So we rented this beautiful little shack right on the beach in front of the waves, and I was the bartender and the waiter and the, and the dishwasher and the chef, and I started bringing my father-in-law's uh, mezcals down to our little bar. And of course, the surfers love these mezcals, but this was about eight, eight nine years ago, and the surfers love the mezcals, but every year around uh, Easter, Semana Santa, and Christmas, the, in, the Mexicans from like Mexico City and some of the uh, internal parts of Mexico, especially the richer Mexicans, they all take a, like a week or two vacation on the beaches. It's a really popular thing. Like that little town of 200 people at times would get to be 2,000 people like partying out there. Um, and this eight or nine years ago was when Mezcal really started to become, become trendy in Mexico as far as like younger kids starting to take a lot of pride in it. It was kind of a, like richer people used to drink more uh, tequila during those years before, uh, preceding that. But this is when it was, there were starting to be some great mezcalerias opening in Mexico City. And so these, these the surfers loved it, but the, the Mexicans that came down, they were like, your mezcal is very stylistic. Um, it's it's uh, exceptional. You should learn more about it. And so I really took that under advisement and I went traveling around Oaxaca. I just tried to connect every town I could on back dirt roads and learn everything I could. Um, and so we decided to, to try and make a brand. My father-in-law really wanted us to do it. And you know, we started Mezcal Vago on 10,000 bucks, me and my buddy. And um, you know, I didn't even have a car. I rode my bike around Oaxaca for a year. and. Um, and, uh, and, and we built it into something we're just so proud of. And You rode I'll a you bicycle around Oaxaca? I rode a bicycle and we, had a, we took the bus. And your, your thighs must be massive. <laughs> it was like, there's some mountainous regions in there. Well, you burned through the mezcal a little bit, so that's nice. <laughs> I'd say you worked off your hangover, it was like on your bicycle. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and well, uh, Bambino's going to come around with our first mark now. So what was the first expression? Was it your father-in-law's mezcal? Are we going to get to taste some of that tonight? Yeah, so we're gonna taste the, we're gonna taste mezcal from three different producers tonight. Um, the our, like on the Vago labels now, you'll see that there's colors. So anything with a natural label is gonna be from my father-in-law. These blue labels are gonna be from uh, Miguel Harkin from Mihuatlan, from another town in Oaxaca. And the red labels are gonna be our clay pot distillates from Tio Rey from Sola de Vega. 
Um, so we're going to taste some from, from uh, Aquilino. And when I did those travels around, I really, I, I found it so interesting that these guys were telling me how stylistic his mezcal was. Like I really had no reference at all for what that meant. And so really searching around, like what I found was like the polar opposite of Aquilino's mezcals were like a, a were Tio Reyes mezcals. Um, Aquilinos are, are like, we'll talk about why in a second, but they're basically, they're really, um, they're foolproof, unapologetic mezcal, but in a really elegant way that's really plant forward, where a Tio Reyes are like big back end, big finish. And so we actually launched those, those two together, and I really wanted to bookend a conversation. We try and be like really thoughtful about everything we put into the bottle. We really want to add to the conversation with Vago, but more importantly, that our mezcals add to the conversation of mezcals, especially in the US, where we wanted to build our, our brand in the beginning. So right now we're gonna drink a mezcal Esparin from my father-in-law, Aquilino Garcia Lopez, from the town of Candelaria, Yegole. Um, Esparin is the most commonly cultivated type of agave. Um, it's the genetic mother of Tequiliana Blue Weber. I think that's a real interesting way of pointing out how mezcal, of course, is kind of like the mother of tequila. Um, and uh, it's the most, it's the least expensive mezcal because it's the most cultivated, the highest in sugar content. The, it, it grows in the most uh, variety of areas. It's a really strong, uh, fast-growing mezcal in, the, in that it can mature in sort of eight years, seven, eight years, maybe nine years on average. And um, and so this is uh, stone ground to hone ground, of course, fermented in open-topped wooden fermentation vats and distilled in a 300-liter copper pot still. Um, I think one really interesting thing about mezcal is the mineralities that you get tasting mezcal. Uh, these three mezcal producers that we're tasting all have different water sources. So when we add water to the fermentation, and we can do some mezcal 101, I'll do it if we need to, I can talk to you guys about that. But this is river water and, and that's added. The mezcals from Amigdio we'll talk about, but those are well water and this is spring water. And you get a big minerality from all of them, but you get different minerality from the levels of where it comes out of the ground. So I think it being copper, stone ground, of course, wild fermented, but I think uh, the water is something that's really important about but this. You're not gonna get any microbes because this is distilled, so don't worry. We are just using the water in the fermentation, but then you then distill it, and so everything, everything's great. Yeah, of course, distilling is, is cleaning out. And when you distill on your second distillation, um, basically the first drops that fall, that come out of your still, they're going to be the lightest elements. Um, and they're going to be, that we drink them sometimes, they're called the heads or the puntas. Um, and it's the highest proof, but they're these like razor sharp, tight, linear flavors that I think are really representative of the agave. And the longer and longer time that you distill, you'll get lower and lower proof. You're going to get heavier and heavier uh, elements coming out. That's where the esters start coming out. The deeper and deeper and deeper you go, you're gonna get a bigger finish. The more that back end you put in, you'll get bigger finish, but you can start to lose subtlety on the top. What I learned about Aquilino's style, like I talked about, was that he has a really elegant style because he doesn't put a lot of the tails in. So people talk about heads and tails, but it's really arbitrary until you start talking about what's the proof of the tails you're putting in. So the last uh, 20 liters, or, re or really the last 40 liters, that Aquilino's putting in in a normal like 800 liter batch of Espadin, which is one oven full of agave and creates one batch, are gonna be about 28% ABV, always sort of between 25 and 30. Whereas uh, much more common in Oaxaca, like Tio Rey, for example, 
he's down at about 10 or 12%. So Aquilino's giving away a ton of his yield to get a flavor profile that, that he is very passionate about, a really elegant, plant-forward style of mezcal. Um, and I think it's so interesting that uh, like a pretty poor farmer, uh, when we first met, you know, uh, would give away that much of a plant that an espadine plant takes a square meter and a half of land on average about eight, nine years really, and you're gonna get about eight bottles from that one plant. Um, so you can imagine just how much land you need and how much, how little land these guys have and they're devoting that and then to give away 10 or 20% of your yield to chase your flavor profile, I found that incredibly interesting. Definitely. Now, how many, you're saying you 800 plants to a batch of to one cooking in that? In 800 that uh, kilos, excuse oh, okay. me. Okay, okay. About 100, 120 plants to fill one oven full. How long is the fermentation? How long does it take? Because you guys are just, you're not adding any yeast to the fermentation, it's just natural yeast, is that right? That's right, so it's natural yeast, so, um, when, when you, you roast your agave, so when you, when, you, when you harvest agave, it is sugar. They're high in sugar content, but it's complex sugars in the form of starch. So we, we cut off all the leaves and we take that piña, the heart of that, we roast it underground, which is where we get, you know, on, we build a fire with, with trunks of wood. We add the rocks on top. We light that on fire for four or five hours and, and just completely burn that wood off until the rocks are red hot. Put all of our agave on there and then bury it underground for for a couple days and we're transforming those complex sugars in the form of starch into simple sugars that we're gonna grind up. We're either hand mashing like TRAs or we're using the, the mule uh, driven uh, tohona or the stone okay. wheel. Um, and we grind up that agave. It's not really juice that comes out of there. You just sort of get a wet mash. Like I think a lot of people think it's gonna be like juice really running out of there, but it's just basically like a wet mash. So we can fill uh, with the stone wheel with the tohona we, we can, in an 11 hour day, we can fill two fermentation vats. They're about a thousand liter, the classic ones they've been using forever. Um, and from the time we do that, you, you, you so have that to would wait. Be, that would be like a big, tall hot tub that about these many people could get into, right? Yeah, like a Japanese sitting hot tub, one of those deep and uh, not that wide. And, um, and so once, you, once you, top it, you top it off, you, you fill it about three quarters full with the wet mash, right? and you wait a couple of days before you start formulating or adding water, you're letting it start to heat up and ferment. And then slowly you add in a little bit of water, tepid water, a little bit at a time. If you add too much water, too cold of water, too hot of water, you'll kill your fermentation. So you're slowly adding water and you're topping off the last quarter with water. So two days without water and on average about, I would say seven or eight days, uh, with, with, with the water. So on average, I think about nine days would be a good ferment in that region where it's quite hot and I think we get really good clean ferments. And I think that's something that changes in higher regions. Um, and, I, and I think like some of the regions where like Raisia comes from, for example, they'll ferment much longer than that, 20 days, 23 days. And that's where you get those heavy lactic, really acidic, really different style of mezcal. So that, that classic Oaxaca and really even that classic like Yegole, where Ray Campero and, and, and Bago and some of the Jogorios like from Ignacio Parada, Don Chucho from, um, who was actually born in Yegole, who makes his mezcals in Soquitlan about an hour away from Yegole. That style I think comes from those really hot, fast, clean ferments. And when we go over nine days and we start getting 10, 12, 13 days, 
if you wanted to take your sugar levels, because your sugars are transforming into alcohol, so lower and lower and lower sugar content, you're gonna get higher alcohol, and you're gonna get a bigger yield, but you're gonna start to get very different uh, textures and flavors. Right on, so let's stick your nose in that glass, breathe in gently through your mouth. What do you guys smell as you try this Espadine? And what was the maker's name again? I'm sorry, I pulled my glasses This off. is uh, Aquilino Garcia Lopez, my father-in-law. All right, all right. And this is the Espadine. So what do you guys smell as you smell this Espadine from Mezcalvago? Smoky. Smoky? So what kind of wood are you using to uh, smoke the agaves? They, they use like these river woods called uh, sauce, and um, they use a little bit of mesquite. And you know, one thing we've never done is like been super obsessive about the wood. The region that our, that, that where Diego Le is, there's not a premium of wood. And we personally haven't noticed a huge difference with types of wood. So we mix and match that, and um, and, and that's very yeah. traditional. People would just be gathering whatever kind of wood they had around. It wasn't until like all the hipsters started drinking mezcal and started asking about what kind of wood they use that it was even a concern. Probably they probably just used whatever wood they had around in order to heat the rocks, in order to cook the agaves. It wasn't something that was overly thought about. I would think it's true. And and with the limited amount of wood, we're really trying to only use deadfall wood. So yeah, exactly that we prioritize that over trying to, to harvest a specific type of tree or something like that. So I'm and in little... fact, we distill, uh, like at certain times of year, up to 80% of the distillation will happen with uh, cactus wood from the inside of the big organo cactuses that are down there. Wow, that's cool. It's not dense that. enough to roast in the oven, but it's a perfect type of wood for distilling. Interesting. So what are you guys getting as you uh, tap this Mezcal Vago Espadine over your tongue here. Floral, apricot. It is lighter, it's not, I get a good minerality on the finish, but it's like actually kind of chocolatey and piney and, and, and very balanced and light. Very balanced, I think it's it's like, like an unbalanced mezcal, I think if it didn't have enough back end, it would disappear or if it had a bunch of water added on the back end, like too much water added on the back end would disappear off your palate. I think it has a beautiful finish but I feel like the finish, I love the balance of it that it doesn't take away from the nose. And for me, it's a really, I think one of the characteristics of an Espadine Mezcal is that you almost can't identify the agave type. Like it's, it's like, I think like Espadine, it's like, it's almost it's lack of like, like you taste a Madre Quiche or taste a Tepestate or even a Tobala. And there's such like distinct flavors that come from those agave types. But it's like the lack of distinct flavor from Espadine that almost identifies it as an, an Espadine, and so I love that. I feel like I feel like if you're tasting, it's like really easy to make a good tapastate, but it's almost hard to make a really elegant and good Espadine. And I think the the process and the hand of the maker is laid uh, a little bit naked and bare in an Espadine production. And so for me, like tasting this, I'm really proud of that it has a nose, it has an initial taste you get a mid palate and a nice finish, and I feel like it is balanced all the way through. Wow. Yeah, I really like this one a lot. Now, are you guys using water to bring your mezcal down to proof, or are you using just tails? So we do different things with different producers on different batches. Um, with our Espadina and Elote, we do use some water. And you know, one thing I think is really important and something we're extremely proud of with, with Bago is, you know, we really try and make it, I, I tell my story because like the white guy talking about Mezcal, you know, I think it's really important. I want, I want you guys to understand that I'm representing this amazing family. 
Um, but we really want it to be about the mezcal, about the guy who made it, the plant, the town, and, and all that. So we, we have 100% recycled mash label, and we have as much information as we can fit on the label. Uh, about, these about are, these are actually agave fibers that make up the paper of this label. Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, you take the mash the from mosto. the fermentation, and it's an artist friend of mine, Eric Ramirez Castellanos, and, and he makes it. What you're drinking is what the, the label's made out of. Um, and so what we try and be is, and I think we are, the most transparent brand on the market. It's something I'm extremely passionate about. There's um, some really sort of taboo subjects out there, and, and I think one example... And, and I really sympathize why. I think like everybody wants to like understand mezcal and you want to like put it in a box, right? You want to say, this is so crazy and it's so wild and there's so many different flavors and I want to start understanding it. But I mean, I, I feel like a baby in mezcal. I've been doing this for 10 years. My life's dedicated to it. And I just, I learn so much every time I'm in, with the mezcaleros, every time I'm in Oaxaca. Um, and I really feel like a student of it. And um, and so, so we really want to be... Uh, like, so, so, for example, like, we wouldn't have a brand, a, a successful brand, if we didn't have people like uh, Del Maguey and like Ron Cooper come before us and do like the hard yards, you know? Where they were 15 years ago or 20 years ago selling bottle by bottle, telling people like, hey, you should pay a decent price for this. It's, it's art, it's elegant, it's incredible. And, and they, they built that up. And I think they had to come up with some kind of dogmatic like catchphrases to like get people to understand what it was. And one thing they talked about was mezcal with water is not mezcal. It was like a, it's like a, a Del Maguey Mez, saying. And mezcal con agua no es mezcal. Uh-huh, and, and this is like, this is a really funny thing. And I love those guys. I'm great friends with everybody there. So I, I'm not, I would never speak bad about any brand. And I totally understand why they did that because they were fighting against mezcals and tequilas that are watered down to 32 and 38 and 40% alcohols that don't have any finish and aren't a traditional mezcal. But when we start to get too locked up in that, what you get is you get a lot of people being untransparent about how mezcal is brought down to grade. So what I think a lot of people don't realize is like people are like heads and tails, heads and tails, that's what's bringing it down. But what they don't realize is like traditionally, and you, you see this only like in the very, very back, back woods, like you really got to get out there. But the traditional way people used to bring, like my father-in-law used to bring, you know, 40, 50 years ago, his dad taught him. You'd bring a mezcal down to proof by distilling all the way down in your second distillation until where you didn't want to put any more of that colas or the tail, the back-end flavor. And Aquilino didn't like a lot of that back-end flavor. And what these guys all would do was then they would take first distillation or ordinario and they would add that in. And if you've ever had a chance to taste a single distilled mezcal, the first distillation, you put in your, your, you put in your fermented mash into the still, it's at about eight or 9% alcohol by volume at that point. You distill it, and the body of that first distillation is gonna be about 30 or 35% alcohol. It's sweet, it tastes like plant, it's not clean, and, and it's, this is really a not a clean way of bringing a mezcal down to proof. So you're, you're essentially, um, you can get like headaches from it and and my father-in-law didn't like to do that and so for 40 years like as a guy grew, you know making mezcal his own way in the hills for no profit with no business and no selling it he's been distilling and adding water for that whole time and so for someone to say like oh this isn't a traditional way of making it is really i think kind of funny and then the more you learn about how spirits are are, are brought down to proof um other spirits besides mezcal it would be so funny to stand on a, on a soapbox and say, mine has the most 
back end or ass end of this distillation, because kola can mean your back, you know, right? So of, of, any, of any mezcal or any spirit. Um, and so I found that really interesting, and it, 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 it totally messed up my head. I know this is a long answer, but it's a good question. It totally messed up my head because I was like, I mean, I'm big on it. Like when I was learning about mezcal, of course, I learned a ton of it by learning everything I could from Del Maguey, like back, you know, eight or nine years ago. And, um, and, uh, and I was like, Aquilino, like, I can't believe you add water to your mezcals. And he just like laughed at me, you know? And, uh, and, then, and I like, we broke down his distillations and he's like, okay, look, we'll break it into five liter pieces and you can play with it and you can show me it and I'll show you exactly what I'm doing. And he taught me about it. And, uh, and what I learned was his mezcal and his style has to do with, with adding a lot of water. And then further what I learned from doing a ton of research down there is a lot of guys were adding distilled water to their fermentations or to their, to their distillations, not to like water it down to 40. They still want to have it with the cordon and las perlas that signify that it's a foolproof mezcal. But then they were scared to talk about it because it became a taboo subject. That's so funny. we're really proud to talk about the water we add. And in fact, uh, with, with the elote and the esperin, and in fact, the change that I made being like a gringo that got into this market was I learned about this crazy Armagnac technique where you take colas, uh, and these are Aquilino's high-proof colas. That they're at about 28% ABV. And I'll take about 40 liters, the last 40 liters of those, and I'll add it to distilled water, and I'll rest those for about six weeks. And it transforms from this funky flavor into this like mint, like rose petal water that's unbelievable. And then it doesn't shock the mezcal. And this is like an Armagnac trick where they take colas and water and age it in barrels. It was something I learned from an amazing guy, Wyatt Peabody, that helped me out with this stuff. But then, so that the only change we added was adding a little more colas and aging it with the water. That's brilliant. And well, that makes all the sense in the world because technically speaking, uh, mezcal is more similar to a brandy than it would be to a whiskey. You're making it out of fruit. So, what is the second mark that we're going to get into here? Is this the elote? Is that a long enough answer, you guys? That was great. <laughs> but we got to keep people like sipping here. I'd like to hear what you guys think about that. Is, it, is that a surprise to you? Interesting. I, I think it's really important because you know, those, you, if you if you make subjects taboo then you're gonna get misinformation. So it's important to be able to talk about all that. It totally makes sense. So you guys, so we're gonna drink uh, the Mezcal Bago Elote that I'm sure hopefully a lot of, how many people have tried Elote, everybody? More or less? Okay, this is well, the first Bago that I ever tried, was the, was the Elote. So this is a Mezcal that's totally unique to Valentina's family, my family. Um, and uh, thank you. It, we're, we built our business on this. We're so proud of it. We didn't know how it would be received, but it's 100% Espadin distillate. It's exactly the same recipe as the mezcal we tasted, except that we take sun-dried corn, maize, and this is beautiful heirloom corn they've been growing in that valley for a couple thousand years. We grow it just during the rainy season, so it's, uh, it's fully organic. And grown just during the rainy season up there. We sun dry it. It's called maiz at that point when you take the kernels off the sun dried cob. And we toast that on a clay comal. A comal is where you would make tortillas. Uh, it's a clay comal, a flat pan where you'd make tortillas, mesquite wood fire. So we toast the maiz and we drop it straight in the still during the second distillation. 
no corn alcohol, no fermented corn, just a light infusion of toasted corn, almost like a gin, floating straight in the still during the second distillation. And that's just something that was local to that village? Is something that like was kind of a traditional kind of something off the beaten path in terms of traditional artisanal mezcals? Yeah, no, I mean, this was just purely ingenuity from my father-in-law 30, 35 years ago. Basically, like when you're a sustenance farmer, you don't have a much extra time in the day, right? You're basically working sun up till sundown every single day of your life and you do things seasonally. So they would make a couple batches of mezcal a year at most, only when agave was ripe and there was time to make it. And so they would get a bunch of mezcal built up, but then there would be a wedding or a baptism or something special. And Aquilino didn't necessarily have time to go out and wild harvest uh, cuiche or, or some of these other uh, wild agave mezcals because he just didn't really have time to even go out there very often to do that. So he got the idea to start doing different distillates and he did peanuts, limes, cinnamon, corn, all different types of stuff. And uh, he hated the lime, he said it was terrible. The peanuts was pretty interesting. The uh, cinnamon gave him a horrible headache and he vowed never to do that again. Um, uh, but the corn was the thing that he loved and sort of became known for. So that's like Valentina's traditional uh, uh, family mezcal for like a wedding or a baptism. Just festival mezcals, like often uh, pachugas come from that tradition of festival mezcals where you're kind of spicing it up. You're playing around with different kind of infusions in the still. So it's, it's in that same kind of world. That's right, like a, tradi a traditional uh, 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 celebration mezcal would be a pachuga where you suspend a chicken breast. And I think a real tr a truth in mezcal is that the best mezcals come from the most humble producers. You know, I've been to hundreds of palenques and the best mezcals truly come from these like wonderful and gentle uh, women and men who make the mezcal and, and let their mezcal speak for themselves. And I love a good pachuga, uh, you know, with, I mean, I've had, I've had ostrich pachuga, I've had rabbit pachuga, the iberico, we've all had the iberico, right, from Del Maguey. There's, they're incredible. And then, I've, you know, of course, rabbit and, and turkey and lots of uh, tropical fruits. Um, some of them can be pretty heavily spiced with anise. And, but I love that the one that represents this amazing uh, family that I married into is just corn and agave, the two principal and most important parts of Mexico, really, and, and especially of rural Oaxaca. You just can't overstate the importance of corn, obviously, to rural Mexico, tortilla being the base of your cuisine. Uh, you're feeding the chickens your corn kernels, the maize. You're grinding the corn meal and making nixtamal, various nixtamal things apart from tortilla, putting it into your moles uh, to thicken them and, and get more sustenance the dried stock to your bigger animals. And so when you drink this, it's not to me sweet. It doesn't taste like corn syrup or something. I think you get, if anything, light toasted notes and light tortilla notes. And it's really about like, if you've traveled around in Oaxaca, it's about that smell of roasted agave that permeates the air near a palenque and the smell of, of handmade tortillas on a, on a clay comal. And so for this mezcal to be the one that represents our family, I think it truly is representative of them. And, Something we're proud of. So what are you guys getting? Is you stick your nose in this glass and then mezcal vago elote? What are you reminded of as you smell this mezcal? How about the texture difference? You guys notice the texture difference? Mm. Mm. Much more creamy, velvety, yeah, lactic. It's very almost. soft, very soft on the palate. Mm. 
Have you guys ever done a retro nasal breath? So you like, you drink your sip in and then you like compress your diaphragm and breathe out through your throat like this, like, or through your nose, through your throat, like, and you, you can get some really nice mezcal flavors out of your stomach doing that. I also, like, I get that, she said corn nuts, but I, there's a nuttiness to it for sure, like that roasted corn. I really think so, yeah. Like corn nuts, yeah, I mean, it really is. It's beautiful. Wow. So if I was gonna buy a bottle of the Elote for my home bar, how much is that gonna run me in my local liquor store? Yeah, so we priced that. I mean, I think one of the smartest business decisions we ever made, we thought about pricing it like really high with Pachugas and because it was something really special to us. But then in the end we said like, let's make it like $2 more than, a, than our Espadine. And let's, let's, we didn't know if people would think it was gimmicky or weird, but in the end people have just totally embraced it and we're so happy. And, and so our regular Espadine sells for like 48 to 55 and this sells from like 53 to 60, depending on the wow. store, so. Very affordable compared to a lot of the artisanal mezcals that are currently out on the market. And I think that goes back to like, the whole idea of like, people talk a lot about uh, sustainability right now in the mezcal world, but I think also is the fair trade aspect. It's like, how much are the producers actually getting? How are these villages flourishing with the influx of the mezcal sales in America? What have, you, what have you seen and, and how, how do you make it a, a fair trade agreement with the people that you work with? Well, I mean, it's, it's I mean, you can't really, like, you can't really overstate it with Bago. I mean, it, this town has no economy and there's no way of making a living. Every adult male leaves mostly illegal to the United States to work for at least some amount of time to either send money back or get enough money back uh, to like build a little house and, and either live Traditionally, like my father-in-law in the 90s swam the Rio Grande twice and came over and picked oranges and made enough money to like help build out the and fix the palenque and help build the little adobe part of the, that was the old part of the house that Valentina grew up in. And at that point it was a dirt floor shack with, you know, five brothers and sisters. And, 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 and uh, when I met my father-in-law, you know, he was doing okay, but he was like working a little cement on the side when someone would send money back down from the States to build a little project or a little house and he was just farming and um, so like now you just like you go down there and it's like the biggest the biggest biggest change is that my brother-in-laws live down there so Mateo Garcia uh, who's come to the states and has a visa now and, and makes mezcal every day and when we when he first started coming down on his his uh, spring break and, and working at our little bar on the beach he's been making mezcal non-stop with his dad and since Vago was born in a and even a little bit before, but the fact that he's married, has bu he's building his second house. He actually decided to build a second house, uh, we're in Tabu, um, and, uh, and, and lives in this town where there was no economy is just huge. My other brother-in-law, Temo Garcia, reverse migrated. He spent seven years uh, picking watermelons and uh, oranges, no? Oranges and watermelons. Um, and he's been back now two years, built a house, married, just had a kid and has saved way more money in two years than seven years of being in the, in the States. And they all have cars and motorcycles. And you know, we're in a really different position that, in that our family is owners in, in Bago. Um, and um, we're really proud of that. And we recently actually like uh, affiliated, we changed our distribution and we wanted to get a little more national presence. And there's like building an artisanal brand, you kind of reach a limit of where you can get to. And, and I think this is a really interesting topic, but like how big do you want to build or if you don't, and we really wanted to find a middle road with Vago where we didn't lose any of the magic or who we were 
and we don't want to like sell to like a multinational conglomerate and and like lose our identity. And what we ended up finding was we found uh, this really this the first of its kind where it's an independent spirits portfolio. So now Vago is aligned with a really interesting uh, whiskey out of uh, Chicago called Few. The first uh, the first um, the first. Uh, craft gin in the country, uh, Blue Coat out of Philadelphia, an amazing French single malt from this uh, incredible woman entrepreneur, uh, Alison uh, Bren and Vago. And so we stand together now. So what we did is we gave up some of Vago's shares, um, but we, we bought into the bigger company. And so now our Mescaleros, I have, have all traditionally been owners of just Vago. Now they also own part of like these whiskey and gins and stuff. And That's for really me, cool. like, I think there's this really, like people get scared by it and I think it's really tempting to be a purist and say, we don't want to lose the tradition of mezcal. I was just having a wonderful conversation with, uh, with Aaron over there and um, it's really tempting to say like, we don't, we don't want to lose the tradition and we shouldn't make more than a batch or two a year. But like when these guys have opportunity to make a living and change the, the, the history of schooling, of finances and, and the, the balance of power, which is, frankly been terrible in Mexico for poor people. Um, I think it's really important. And it's very American to drive around in our fancy cars, um, have the security that we have, big big streets, relative safety, and then go down to Mexico and just cherish these handmade tortillas. But that handmade tortilla, like you've got grandma on her knees grinding this corn on a matate, and at some point, you want to help grandma up, you know, and you don't want to say like, well, let's start a tortilla factory that's fused smoke, but like, where's the balance there? Yeah. Um, so, so for totally me, I, I, I've, it hasn't been necessarily about, and I think people get really hung up, for example, on like, well, how much do you pay per liter? Like that's a, it's a really, it's, people say it all the time. People have been in Mezcal forever. And I, I find it so short-sighted because there's, there's so many different aspects of like, how are you helping a mescalero with their taxes? How are you helping them plan with any uh, windfalls that they have? How are you making sure that you're going to change their lives financially, generationally? And how are you going to have a longer spirit? You could pay someone, a, you know, $100 a liter, and if you only buy 1,000 a, a, a liters a year, it's like, it's really not, it, it's expensive to live in Mexico. It's expensive to be a farmer. That's why everyone's leaving those towns. They used to go and then come back. Now no one's even coming back. It's half the size it was five years before that, half of it it was b before that. So what we have with Bago is we have ownership with our mescaleros. We have long, long-term vision about where we're going. And like one thing we'll never do is like take their names off of here. We have GPS coordinates on our, on yeah, our, on our blog. Like go yeah, and yeah, meet our that. guys. Like no one, no one can, like people worry about their mescaleros getting stolen or whatever. It's like, you can't steal something, someone that, it's like you let the, what's the saying about the bird? You let it go, if it loves you, it comes back. I That's mean, it's right. like, you can't control people with contracts or, or, or hide them. And so we're really proud of what we're doing. And um, you could get in a short-sighted conversation about leader price or something like that. But the, the thing that you need to do is go down, talk to a mescalero from a brand that you're curious about and see how they're doing and see what they want to do and see where they're we're going and, and where they've been, where they've come from to have perspective, so. Cheers to that, that's wonderful. Thank you for that long answer once again. No, but it's important <laughs> stuff. No, really, I that's really, about this stuff a little bit. It's, it's something that a lot of folks don't have an answer for, so I appreciate you making that very clear, I, I really do. Uh, Bambino's gonna come around with our third mark. 
What is this third expression? Who makes it? Where is it from? So this is um, actually, this is the, one of our newest mezcaleros, uh, Emigdio Harkin from the town of Mihuatlan, from El Nante, Mihuatlan. And uh, this town is just red hot right now. Like people are loving the mezcals from this town in Mexico. And I think a lot around in the States too. Um, this is a Madre Cuiche that we're drinking. Um, it generally uh, takes much longer to come to maturity, yes? Yeah, this is probably, this is an Agave Karwinski, takes about 15 years. It's cultivated Karwin, uh, culti cultivated Madre Cuiche from Amigdio's land. Um, it's about uh, six hours away from, you know, five, six hours away from Aquilinos. So it's different airborne microbes that are the yeast in the fermentation. It's well water in the, in the fermentation, so you're gonna get a different minerality. It's stone ground on a bigger Tahona, copper pot stilled. But this still actually has, um, it's just that you guys know what a regular copper pot still, right? It's just empty with a little bell on the top and then goes into a coil condenser that's in water, right? So around the bell lid of this thing, he's just got a pot welded to the top where cool water can fall in there and then just run out. So there's no plates or anything in this thing. But like I was saying, when you would ferment your agave, it would have about, your agave and water would have about an eight or 9% ABV. You'd run it in your first distillation. It would fall at about 30, 35% on your first distillation. Well, with the cooling unit, with the, with the lid, cold water running on the lid of this thing, so you've got your fermented mash in there bubbling away, the vapors rise, it refluxes back in. There's no plates, there's no anything inside, but it refluxes back in. Only once it's pure enough can it get past the cooling lid, and then it goes through the regular coil condenser, and in one pass, falls at foolproof mezcal. So we call it wow. a single pass by distillation on a type of still that we call a refrescador. That's really, there's, there's very little in the States. You guys probably have one or two, maybe from Algoria, like a, I think one of the Nuestra Soledad's there, is done like There's a famous that. Puebla still. There's a still that's called the, I believe it's called the Puebla style still that it has these kind of disc flavor uh, shaped. Yeah. Um, and that's really different. That's way, way different than this deal. And that's so a single one, pass as well. They're able to get it up to right. a very but high that's proof more of like after a, homemade a single distillation. Uh, like plates with plate with refluxes and plates. Well, right? the reflux is caused simply by the shape. There's no plates inside okay, of it. Okay. It's caused by the actual shape of the still itself. So imagine like two large saucer-sized uh, bulbs, essentially. So it's a pot still that then goes up and flattens out graduates in and then flattens okay, yeah, out yeah. again and then graduates again. So just the dramatic shape creates such reflux that they're able to get it up to sure. alcohol and this is 80, even proof this is off just of literally one distillation. Cold water running on the lid and it falls at uh, 160 proof on the first That's drop. crazy. That's and, uh, crazy. And you, you reduce your yield, but you can imagine that you get the different flavor because you still got that fermented mash in the still. Usually you would clean that out, put your first distillation back in and redistill it. Um, it's really a regional thing to Ejutla and the Mihuatlan area. Um, we don't do that with his Espadine, we just do that with his Madre Cliche. But like, we, when we brought our mezcals, we got into these really amazing boutique distributors um, who had incredible spirits and, and I started learning about rum agricole and I started learning more about wine. And the wines I really fell in love with, I love white wines, I love champagne and any bubbly and I, I love like when they're almost like flawed in a beautiful way, like a face, you know. They have a, they're like bready or yeasty on the nose. And the more I learn about mezcal, the more I realize how much the wild fermentation Thank is you, influencing the flavor. And so what I wanted 
to find, and I spent, like, we were really fortunate with Aquilino and Fiore that, like, pretty much within a year or two, we were selling every drop we could produce. Super fortunate. And we could have brought more mescaleros on right away, but we wanted to be very thoughtful about what we put in the bottle. And the more I learned about those wines, I really was like, okay, I want a mezcal that's yeast forward, has a really interesting nose, and a, and a true representative, a, a representation of the place. Like, I, I think the definition of a great spirit is, is a spirit that gives you a sense of place. You close your eyes and you drink it, and you're transported to a, a dusty road in Oaxaca. And so when I met Emigio Harkin, and I smelled the nose of this, I think his so intensely mezcal. minerality here. There's so much like. It's like pencil shavings. It's like, I smell metal. I smell like- What do like, you guys smell? What are you guys getting? Like wet lettuce. Just wet lettuce? Like Sotol. Like yeah. Miguel, what are you getting on this one? Clay. Clay. Yeah, it's beautiful. What are you guys getting? Cut grass. Beautiful. Beautiful. Wet gravel. Wet gravel. Petrichor. Right on. The thing I, I always smell is like seeds, like, I actually think it smells like tahini. Like That's it smells funny. like uh, tahini to me, like a oh, lemony yeah, yeah. toasted sesame. Like fresh tahini, I know. I've, I've had that, like, it's really, really good. I think this is, I think this mezcal from uh, Miguel is like one of the more interesting noses of any mezcal Definitely. I've ever tried. So now tap that over your tongue and see how the experience changes. Sometimes your nose will tell you one thing, but when you tap it over your tongue, it's a completely different experience. Allow that surprise to occur. What are you guys getting as you tap this Mezcal Vago Madroquiche over your tongue? Madroquiche. So vegetal, no? So much plant in there. It's also very perfumey on the tongue. Like, great spice, too. It's got a little bit of like cinnamon chocolate going on. Some floral aspects. I'm surprised. It's really complex because it smells so minerally on the nose, but then the tongue is something completely different. That's beautiful. B-Dog, what do you get, man? Like champagne. Champagne. Is that yeastiness that he's talking about? Yeah, the is yeastiness. And, really... and champagne has a real minerality to it, too, because that's so much of that carbonation. It's fascinating know? how these mezcals dry your mouth out, isn't it? I think that's oh, yeah. what makes them so fantastic to eat food with. And in fact, if you're ever wanting to like serve a bunch of mezcals and you want an elegant and interesting uh, palate cleanser, a good dry bubbly is probably about as good as it gets uh, to cleanse your palate between mezcals. I will try that. <laughs> right on. That is gorgeous. And what's the bottle press on this one, the Madrequiche? This, this is a really rare agave, and I think the price of mezcal is really determined by the rarity of the agave. And of course. This will run you about 90 bucks retail. How many bottles can you get from a batch? Let's see what this batch is. Uh, you know, he's able to produce, and it depends what we get. This is, uh, I think, a pretty typical batch of Madre Cliche. We're going to get one or two a year. Uh, this is a 413-liter batch. Super rare stuff. Is this, all of these expressions are not currently available in Southern California right now. No, these are. Everything we're drinking is available right now, except the last one. Okay. Which and we have coming. Why does this one have a tax stamp on it? This, this is not the tax stamp, so oh, okay. this is the hologram, this, this uh, narrow rectangle uh, silver sticker. This is the hologram from the CRM, or the Consejo Regulador de Mezcal. This is the regulatory board that handles certification of mezcals and protects the denomination of origin of the word and, and, and the product mezcal. 
It's the geographically the largest denomination of origin of any a denomination of origin. For those who don't know, is like champagne or or bourbon. It protects that word and cognac. It, it's like a it's a good and bad thing. Like some people are like, oh, how can you take this and take the word mezcal away from people who've made it forever? And but like you know that's the bad side of it. the good side is is you're trying to make the word mezcal synonymous with quality, and that's like what the CRM is dedicated to. Um, I think they're doing a pretty darn good job of that it. That is amazing. It's got like this big apple-y finish. It's really yeah. quite so remarkable. If you see this hologram, if you don't see this hologram, it's not a certified mezcal, uh, and, and it shouldn't have the word mezcal on the label uh, as far as uh, commercially. And if you do see that, that's from the Consejo Regulador de Mezcal. Beautiful. Bambino is going to come around now with our fourth mark. What is this fourth expression? <laughs> got to be careful what questions you ask me. <laughs> i got long answers for everything. No. So this is, uh, this is the other mezcal that we launched at the same time uh, as Aquilino's. The, all of our red labels means that they're from Solomon Ray Rodriguez Santiago. He's Tio Ray. We all call him. Everybody else calls him Tio Ray, too, Uncle Ray. Um, he, he's uh, in this little town called Sola de Vega. He's actually uh, an uncle by, um, by, uh, by marriage. And I actually learned that after I met him, which was like really Mexico moment and, and a beautiful little moment. My sister-in-law is married uh, to his nephew and lives out in Sola de Vega. Actually, they just moved back to Yegale, which is really cool. But um, he, instead of stone grinding, he hand mashes this with wooden mallets that weigh about, I don't know, these things are like 15 pounds. And uh, they're probably even heavier than that. I've seen some, like, like if you've been to where they, they mash it with mallets, it's like these big kind of square baseball bats that they use in like, they have like a, you know, a, a trench in the ground that is where they beat so these the, 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 They almost look like a, like a club, the upside down yeah, club, yeah. the ones he's talking about. And those guys vertically mash like this. This is the wooden mallet kind, like actually looks like a wooden sledgehammer. And so they do, they do that and they have a canoa and the maso, the maso is the hammer and the, the canoa, almost like a canoe is like a hollowed out piece of wood like that. And one guy stands on either side and they bash it. You chop it up with your, the roasted agave with your machete into pieces about like that. And then you're hand mashing it. Let's put that in perspective, okay? That's so we crazy. talked about the stone wheel, that, the tahona that we can fill in an 11 hour day, we can fill 2,000 uh, liter fermentation vats. It's three days hand mashing to fill one 700 liter fermentation vat. And then That's he's distilling of instead of in copper, he's distilling in uh, 50 liter clay pots. Um, they're beautiful little clay pots. And um, all you have is like an upside down, like if you picture a construction hat, with a tube welded off it, and you turn that upside down and put it in the mouth of the pot. Cold water runs in and out of that. that and the, so the condensation happens on the bottom of that metal, and it drips onto an agave leaf, which acts as, acts as a spoon and runs out of a river reed. Um, and, and, and that's what he does, a, a double distillation. Tio Ray goes much deeper into the distillation, like we talked about. Instead of his colas being at uh, 20, five to 30%, these are much more in like the eight to 12%. The highest uh, he would ever stop would be maybe 15. Much, so you're gonna get much bigger back end, less agave notes and more cooked notes, more stewed notes, huge finish. Um, so really there's nothing wrong with either of these styles. This is total hand of the maker stuff. And I love that these two styles 
really bookend our, our conversation. And the mezcal that we're drinking, you guys, is a, 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 a mezcal we call ensemble in barro, which means blend and clay. And what you're basically getting with these is you're getting a one-off batch that'll never be the same, uh, but you're getting it under the same skew called ensemble and barro. And so each batch will be different. It always says, this is just uh, two agaves. This is 80% espadine and 20% coyote. I think one of the, you're kind of coming with us on this journey, learning about mezcal blending and like as we experiment and we've learned so much. I, no one's done as much blending as us and, and we've, we've learned so much about it. Um, you can put two tepastate or one tepastate plant and you're gonna transform the nose of your mezcal. You can put four or five tobala plants and the finish is gonna radically change. You can put 80% espadine in and it's not gonna take anything away from the mezcal and the, and the rare agaves. Um, so uh, it's been really fun. And originally, and, and I think traditionally, like Sola de Vega is probably the most famous town from where they had tobala. And Tobala, they were known for Tobala and Espadine. Tobala and Barro was what they're really, really famous, famous for. Um, but the rest of the agave types, and this is one of the most agave-rich parts of Oaxaca. There's more varietals growing in Tobala Vega than anywhere else I've ever been in, anywhere in the world, obviously, and, and really anywhere in Oaxaca. They would do field blends of what was ripe with all those other agaves, and people didn't even know what they were called. So traditionally, they would just field blend whatever was ripe. So we do some of that. And then we really started to experiment and say, oh no, let's, let's take what we've learned. And it's amazing, you can take two ingredients and really create something bigger, much like cooking, than either of the original ingredients. So I, I think wow. it's a, a pretty fascinating. So stick your nose in this glass, breathe in gently through your mouth. What do you get on this Ensemble de Barro from Mezcal Vago? It's floral? Yeah, rose. Rose, beautiful. Luis. Like a flesh of fruit. Yeah, like uh, baked apple skin almost or something like that. Beautiful. Beautiful. Wow, it's, it's got a little bit of a gluey nose to me, you know? Uh, how long's the fermentation on the, on the, are you, on the ensemble, you're, you're marrying it in the clay barrel, so you're doing separate fermentations for the different... No, we're, we're generally, we're doing, everything's roasted together, mashed together, fermented together, oh, and still okay. together. And that was traditionally how we approached it. But um, my eyes really started opening up to post-distillation blending. We kind of like didn't do that at first because we were just being purists. But then I, re we re I realized from this amazing, this, this guy that I met that has just an incredible palate and was like, stop, you're being ridiculous. And he went behind my bar and poured me all these bl like custom blends that he'd been doing in his house. And my mind just like totally exploded. Um, so we occasionally do some post-distillation blending. Um, sometimes we do it like, the CRM, the regulatory board, has like a really kind of arbitrary and strict set of um, rules about chemically where your mezcal has to be with methanol levels. They used to have acid levels that they finally got rid of because that was just ridiculous. Um, Furfural, um, lead. And so if anything's ever just a little bit high, you can also take that and blend it down with one that's lower to get something that'll pass. And so we want to make sure, like one of the things we're committed to at Bago is that we're going to, uh, work with our mescaleros to make <clears throat> amazing mezcalas they've always made, but we're going to buy every drop they can produce. Um, so we, uh, we'll save batches like that, and we'll do some custom one-off blending. Like one thing we've done is had people come down from 
a great place like here and well someone with a great palate like it'd be amazing to have you down there and you can pull from about 10 different batches and do uh, a I'm, custom I'm, I'm one. I'm willing to do that job. <laughs> and then we can do like one-off batches for people. So that's something we've had a lot of fun doing. So traditionally- well, Maybe we can work on a Las Perlas kind of yeah, thing let's here. Let's it. have that conversation. So traditionally, uh, uh, pre-distillation, roasted, fermented, and mashed together. But we're, I really like to say, you know, we're, we're rooted in tradition. Like it couldn't be more rooted in tradition, but we're also not stuck in the past. And, and we're really open to new ideas and trying new stuff. And, Oh, I love this one. This one's like a dark chocolate on the finish. I get this gluiness. There's a strange kind of floral quality in the middle of the nose as well. It's, it's got so much going on. It's really complex. Great minerality. There's so, just a touch of tobacco on the very back end I'm tasting too. I get that. It's, it's got, for me, it's like cigar ash. It's yeah. got like a certain kind of like- At the very end there. A minerality with that tobacco. It's beautiful. And so this is, we had the first ones were river water. Then we did well water. This is a beautiful year-round sweet spring. So different minerality. Super, I think this is the one that, even though it's juicy and fruity on the front, it's just dry as a bone on the back oh, end. I love that. Really beautiful. So in your travels and like finding these different plinkes, do you start to notice that there are kind of like village to village? Are there village styles? There's absolutely village styles, but like the yeasts that are create the wild fermentation, it's like, it's just crazy. Like six hours away, they're gonna be radically different. And we've started uh, getting lab results of all our yeasts and saving those. We're working with some breweries that are taking our yeasts and then gonna make beers out of them, which I can't wait to try. But I think Tio Rey is a perfect example. So Tio Rey and his brother Alejandro, who's also a really incredible mezcalero, um, they both grew up with their grandpa and, and their father making mezcal in one very specific way and specific recipe. They live about a quarter mile from each other, but traditionally they used the same palenque growing up, right? Now they moved about, a, they actually married sisters, not their own. They married, they married sisters. I was gonna say, wait a minute, whoa. <laughs> it's pretty funny actually. Not judging, I'm just saying. <laughs> and uh, um, they grow, their agave is from the same fields. They use the same water source. Their recipes are like identical in their cuts. Like, I mean, I've sat with them day and night so many times and essentially their recipes are identical and their mezcal, mezcals taste radically different. Absolutely they taste like Sola de Vega mezcals, like a regional mezcal, but I just find that fascinating that the real difference in that, in their, their roast, their oven sizes are the same, their wood that they're using, like the real true variable are just the yeast from that quarter mile and, and they're so fascinatingly different. Alright, I'm going to nerd out for a second really hard on the yeast thing. Do you know, like, people always say, like, oh, we've got, like, mango trees growing near our tinas, and we think that's why we get these notes of mango. Well, is that because, like, are yeast, like, replicating the plants that they're on? Do yeast kind of imitate the plant so that the plant doesn't have the defense against it? Does it kind of, like, take on the flavors of the plant that it... it is eating, is yeast are essentially just eating the sugar of whatever plant that it's on. They're surviving off these plants. Do they kind of like make themselves like whatever plant they're on in order to not be defended against? Do you know anything about the science of yeast? I know nothing about it and, and I absolutely love that. You know, like I, one, I, I think like you taste this mezcal and you get such a strong sense of place. Like you feel like you can taste the farm. I mean, I really do feel, especially when you go there and you're like, 
oh my God, I'm tasting this farm. I'm tasting the air. And I just love that it's the Wild West. Like nobody knows this stuff. Like nobody I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot of people, has like definitive answers on like, are we tasting it because the plant grew near that? Are we tasting it because the mezcal's sensitive when we're producing it? Are we tasting it because those yeasts are from the from that that area right near that stuff? Or is it a com combination of all of them? And uh, you know, to me, I just love that it's. That's totally, why we're uh, here. We're here to learn. So, Bambino. Will you please bring around this final market? You guys are, I believe, the first people in Los Angeles to taste this next mezcal. Am I right, Judah? Yeah, this is actually this is an older batch. This is uh, this is a couple years old. This batch, three years old, I think. But it's a 48 liter batch, so I, I think eight bottles came to California three years ago or something like that. So. So uh, we do is, have another batch of that. These if you have tasted this before, you are like the luckiest person <laughs> exactly. in the world. We're about to taste probably some of the rarest mezcal you've ever had in your life. Yeah, I mean, these truly are. So these, I think this is another taboo subject. Like, people talk about wild agave, and everybody wants the buzz buzzword of the silvestres or the wild agaves. But, and they're like, oh, you can't cultivate tobala. That's a total misnomer. But uh, now, because we start to, I mean, I've, I've repeated that misinformation myself. Yeah. I mean, I do so many of these tastings. I'm learning every time myself. I didn't know that you could get all these, like, tobalas to do starts. But with the mezcal explosion, people are starting to do nurseries, and they're, they're actually getting starts from different what traditionally have been silvestre or wild agaves and planting them and being successful. The success rate might not be that high, but nonetheless, they are able to start to farm what traditionally has been thought of as only wild varietals. Yeah, and, uh, and, and we're really committed to not over-harvesting. So our personal credo is that for every single varietal we take out of the ground, we're gonna put at least three of that into the ground, and, and we're way over that. I mean, we planted well over 50,000 tobala plants in the last two years, and tons more before that, and it, it, it depends where, like Tobala doesn't want to grow everywhere, but like in Sola de Vega, on Tio Rey's amazing farm, Tobala grows amazing. This Tobala was part of an old like um, uh, government apoyo, or there was, like a, there was like a guy that worked with the government there in Sola de Vega, and they did plant some agave in 96. So this was 20 year old cultivated Tobala that was harvested after 20 years. A lot of it, he didn't like keep cutting the underbrush, so it just kept growing and growing. And these are some of the biggest tobalas I've ever seen. So like, I'm sure you guys are, are used to tasting these like melony, fruity, light, beautiful, elegant tobalas. I find this to be one of the most interesting, beautiful, and different tobala uh, mezcals I've ever tasted. How big were these tobalas? Have you seen some of these? Yeah, how, no, how I big? Mean, I, how big? I've harvested them. I mean, the, uh, 60 kilos, some of these things. No way. Which, I mean, usually you're talking like way smaller. But most, I mean, growing this, this big. Are like, no way. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm learning so much tonight. And so this wasn't like cultivated glass. just recently. This was, this was literally harvested 20 years after it had been in the ground. Actually, wow. 21 years after it had been in the ground. That wow. All of it was planted in 96. Incredible. So what are you guys getting on the nose of this Vago, Menscal Vago Tobala? Very, very, very rare Menscal here. What'd you say? Butterscotch. Pear. Sweet syrup and butter. Sweet syrup and butter. Brandon. Butterworth. Yeah, the little. Yeah. Oh, oh, like like maple syrup. Yeah, like the. Miguelo. 
We got a guess. Chocolate? Wow. Yeah, and, and like to me, I think you get that maple or molasses, and I think you get like this other like white pepper thing going on on the, on the flavor that I just like, I've never tasted oh. any other tobala like this. This where, where the Madre Cuiche, uh, Emitio makes a, a lot of different mezcals and they're all amazing, but the Madre Cuiche truly is his, his quintessential mezcal. This is Tio Rey, like the history of Tobala and clay pot distillation and his, his Tobala. I mean, the, when, I, when I tried this, I had tried so many different mezcals and I was like wasted by the end of like a long day of going to like 25 palenques. Wow. And I tried it and my, I couldn't even believe it. I no, this went is home, drove straight back the next day and um, no, you know, I'm, getting, I'm getting like plum and straw. It's, it's fruity, but it's super minerally. It's got these like, dry grass notes to it, it's exquisite. That is absolutely amazing mezcal. Obviously, Judah has love for you guys because he brought this mezcal just for you guys here in the Mezcal Collective at Las Perlas. So let's give it up for Judah Cooper from Mezcal Vago. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show was produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget. Drink to remember.